across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or at the web. VeteransRadio.org is our new URL, VeteransRadio.org. Where we're on the web 24-7, you can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.org. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Andrew Pedigree. Uh, coming to us from Scotland, he is a professor of modern history at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He's a leading expert on the history of uh, the books and media transformations. And he wrote an interesting book that caught my attention called The Book at War. Andrew, welcome to Veterans Radio. Well, thank you very much, Jim, for inviting me. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. This is certainly a topic that caught my attention because I am a reader. Uh, uh, I, I did a lot of reading while on ship and uh, come come from a family of some librarians. So, you know, maybe this was all kind of natural that this one caught my attention. But it's, uh, it's a larger issue than that uh, uh, in terms of being personal because as you explain uh, in the book At War, you see it on all sides here from uh, from how it was used in propaganda, how it was used in supporting war efforts. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what got you into this uh, topic and uh, some of the things you took out of it. Well, I suppose in a way, I've always been a, a part-time student of, uh, of the, particularly the Second World War. I spent two years living in Hamburg in the 1980s, when, of course, it was still quite raw for them, uh, for the Germans. Uh, and my father was a, a navigator uh, flying anti-submarine um, uh, patrols over the Atlantic. And uh, so, you know, he had a, a very dangerous war and we were lucky he, he, he'd survived it. So this has always been in the back of my mind, but it came to the front of my mind when with my St. Andrew's colleague, Arthur Tevedran, we wrote a book on the history of libraries. And that did have to come into the 20th century. In fact, we had a whole section on libraries called Surviving the 20th Century. Uh, and it was not just the challenge of different technologies. It was the fact that libraries were being bombed. 
Um, a lot of libraries have prestigious uh, places in the center of town. They were something which gathered civic pride. So, of course, when we had bombing, they, they, they naturally suffered. But then I wrote that chapter, but then I thought, this is not the end of the story. I mean, book, books are not just victims. They're also protagonists in war. And that's what I really wanted to get into, the extent to which print was not only essential to the successful waging of war, but also played a role in creating the ideologies that me meant that young men were prepared to go to war and to stick at it. And this is true from the American Civil War onwards, that print plays a huge role in bringing about wars. If you use the word propaganda, it's a sort of has a negative connotation to it, but it's more than that. It's really about how the uh, expression of ideas occurs, supporting the ideals of whatever country it is as to why it's necessary to go, go to war. And, and you write on both aspects of that from, from uh, we'll call it democracy size, maybe from the Nazis and the fascists as well. Tell us how, uh, certainly in World War II, how everybody sort of used this uh, media as a um, method to engage the, 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 the country. Yeah. Uh, propaganda is, as you say, a loaded word. Um, but the best propaganda is always um, things which were writ not written as propaganda, which was were written as works of entertainment, but yet had a vision of what a young young man wanted to be embedded into that. Um, you can see this in the boys' magazines of in England in, and the United States in the late nineteenth century, where they had this picture of this sort of young, brave but kind. Um, physically fit young man. And of course, that's exactly the sort of person that a lot of boys want, want to be. And patriotism was deeply embedded in the uh, psyche of um, most people in this era. They felt deeply committed to their country, whether that country was the United States. There was enormous pride uh, the, the the growth of American power and indeed a great deal of support for America becoming an imperial power. Um, uh, Americans were very disdainful of the British Empire, uh, whereas the Germans were very jealous of the British Empire. So the whole idea of domination of the rest of the world um, was deeply embedded in these uh, in this literature which was being read. And then, of course, we get another sort of li literature, which is catastrophe literature. Um, and it's very amusing to, to follow the development of this in England, because we go from novels uh, predicating a French invasion of Britain to novels predicating a German invasion. And that, of course, um, is a reaction to the development of this um, rather unstable great power in the middle of Europe, where the borders between states were very much up for negotiation and, and very porous. It's, it's very different being a continental power like America, where the borders are fairly fixed, an island power like Britain, where the borders are not under challenge, 
and France, a very well-established nation, where, of course, Germany just sprawls across the whole of Central Europe with many ethnic Germans in countries which are not part of Germany. So there's always going to be a difficulty with that power becoming a serious military and naval player, as it does in the late 19th century. One, one of the topics you explore, and we won't, we won't go into this because we'd go down a rabbit hole of each of these um, historical figures and leaders, but, but uh, you point out that so many of the 20th century uh, leaders were somewhat bookish, very, you know, you turn to books to uh, gain knowledge about maybe what their expansion plans were. Touch mm -hmm. on that. Well, that's something that only occurred to me as I was writing this book, that Churchill, Hitler, Stalin. Stalin was an extra extraordinarily uh, intellectually motivated man. And had he not become a revolutionary, he'd have probably become an academic and we'd have been saved a whole lot of trouble. Um, but Charles de Gaulle was a very successful author of a strategic work on, on bank warfare. And Roosevelt was very aware of the importance of books. He was a major collector and, of course, wrote uh, very uh, pithily to express his, 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 his faith in the um, role of print as a, as, as a sort of cornerstone of civilization. Um, and no one has really remarked on this before. The fact that this, this, is, this is bookish people and bookish nations lined up against each other. Um, Britain had in the 19th century probably the world's largest publishing industry, but Germany was hot on its heels, particularly with the quality of German technical institutions and German uh, universities which meant that they came to have a tremendous role in the development of science and engineering as the 20th century dawned. And of course, that had a direct impact on warfare. And, and uh, you, you write a whole uh, section of the book on the mobilization of knowledge, the battle of science and spooks in academia, which is interesting. Um, how you know how maps and and geographic territory uh, topography all way way into how you one way wages war I I suppose um, uh, so it's not just books as mobilizing the populace but as a repository of knowledge to use uh, in war yes yes that's that's a that's a critical point and of course those two come together when you have these great uh, academies of military learning, uh, as in uh, Berlin, West Point is a, a particular uh, example of that. They'd had one of the best libraries in the United States very, very quickly. And it's interesting to see the change in the study of history in those institutions from a concentration on French in the beginning of the 19th century, because of course, Napoleon was the greatest battlefield general of his age. And so people thought we want to we want to find out what was his secret. And so it meant that all these poor Americans had to learn French in order to be accepted for West Point, or they had to take courses there. Uh, and that was not easy for, for, for some of those who, who came from uh, less elite backgrounds. 
So, yes, military education is very important to this, and increasingly so as we get to the modern era, as the size of uh, the armies continues to, to grow, and where not only do we have officers who are educated, but also uh, these citizen armies who have a high level of literacy as well. You, you also write on, and, and I think it highlights the importance of military leaders in looking at, book, at the importance of the book uh, about, uh, we, we mentioned the bombing of libraries, but book banning books and burning books to try to steal or, or eliminate a culture. Uh, again, I think that doesn't, doesn't that highlight the importance of the written word? It does. And I think with the uh, Nazi con conquest of most of the European landmass in the Second World War, you saw that taken to extremes, where, first of all, they seemed determined to destroy cultures completely, not just uh, Judaism, but also the Poles, for instance. They were to be restricted to three or four years of primary education, and otherwise they were to be a, a purely sort of serf population. But then halfway through that process, they, they completely change gears and they say, no, if this is to be a thousand year Reich, we need to have uh, a literature on all these enemy ideologies. So instead of destroying, they started shifting vast quantities of books back to Germany to be the basis of these new libraries. But of course, you can steal as many books as you like if you're uh, the dominant military power, but you can't necessarily catalog them. So by the time 1945 came, and of course, Germany was suffering its own um, uh, terror by uh, bombing, you see all of these books crisscrossing Europe in, in packing cases in the search for, for safety, with the result that many of them didn't get out of their packing cases before the end of the war. And when the Allies got there, they often were able to repatriate large uh, batches of books to the libraries with, from, from which they'd been stolen in the Netherlands and France particularly. But on the Eastern Front, it was a di very different matter because the places of safety to which the Germans had sent many of these books were now in Russian-occupied lands. And so they never came back at all. You know, uh, veteran radio listeners were talking to Professor Andrew Pettigrew, who uh, wrote uh, the book at war. He's a professor at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And and while The Monument Men is a movie in, in the United States and gets remade every couple of decades because it's kind of sexy about uh, U.S. soldiers trying to find lost arts the Nazi has stolen, uh, uh, a similar movie isn't being made about the books that uh, were stolen, if you will. So the book at war that we're talking about uh, highlights that. And maybe down the road it'll be a movie, but at the moment <laughs> it's, uh, it's just the written word. Um, yeah. I, I want to talk before we run out of time about the importance of books for the boys. Yes. Uh, because I think, again, this really drills it down to the... Uh, the G.I. Joe, the, 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 the enlisted men in particular, while while officers often have reading lists they have to go through, you know, it's it's the it's the guy on the front line who who's using these tools as well. Talk a little bit about uh, 
what you're uncovered and wrote about uh, as it relates to the books for the boys? Well, in in many respects, I found when I was writing this, it's a, the, it seems as if the First World War, which in many respects was organizationally chaotic, uh, was a rehearsal for the second. And this was true of books as well. First World War, America comes into the war, its librarians organize this enormous effort to raise books for the boys. But of course, what they're doing is they're having um, the cupboards of middle-class households being turned out um, for unwanted books, mostly hardbacks, which of course is not exactly what the largely working class uh, boys who are doing the fighting want to read. And what makes all the difference is that between the two wars and that brief 20-year interval, we get a revolution in the publishing industry with the arrival of paperbacks. And this is exploited both in Britain with the ubiquity of penguin books, both fiction and nonfiction, and also in the United States with one of the greatest initiatives, intellectual initiatives of the war, which is the American service editions. Now here was a joint effort between the army and the Navy to take recent fiction and some non-fiction titles and print them in special editions, which were in a uh, oblong shape, fitted into the uh, pocket of your uh, service trousers, as did a penguin. And then you, these would be uh, printed up in large editions. They printed something like a thousand different titles, uh, and that amounted to over 123 million copies, which were then distributed free of charge, free of charge, to American servicemen wherever they were placed on the globe. And, and, and you know, if you think about that a little bit, uh, Professor, the value to the community at large, where so many men are reading of all, all shapes and sizes and demographics are reading some of the same literature, some of the same stories, Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me it's a it, it causes a bonding, it causes a commonality that maybe we all miss today a little bit. But it what a, what an effort, amazing effort. Yeah, and of course it brings home something which I'm sure sure I don't need to tell your audience that you know military service is intermittently ter terrifying, but also has long periods of uh, a rather boring leisure where you know nothing's really happening. I mean some servicemen will have will have been um, stationed in, in in places where they were there just in case and the war never came to them. So for many servicemen, and this particularly applied to those who'd been taken prisoner, the prisoners of war, war was an opportunity to gain a reading habit, which they may not have had. Whereas in other parts of the population, and this is particularly among women on the home front, they found war brought so many new things to do. Um, many women lost their domestic servants to war work, so they had to sh shop and cook and clean and garden, which they may not have done before the war. So there were many people in wartime who actually read a great deal less than they read in peacetime, but the opposite was true of many soldiers. Yeah, it's, it's 
fascinating you know, sort of the different uh, facets of this uh, diamond, if you will. Um, before we run out of time, I do want to get your thoughts as to, you, you talked about the revolutionary change that hard covers to paperbacks created. Well, we're in another time now, and unfortunately, we're, you know, we've had the 20-year war in Afghanistan for the United States and coalition forces. Ukraine's now fighting a war. This, unfortunately, we're, it seems the world's always at something like this. But we've had another revolutionary change in, in uh, books and reading, and that's the whole di digitalization of it. What, what's your thoughts as you have the, the, the benefit of history? Uh, now you get to look forward and say, how, how do you think it's impacting things? Well, my, my interest in the history of communication goes all the way back to the beginning of print, where I wrote a book on the transition from manuscript to print. And what, what I can tell you is that every technological innovation is accompanied by a avalanche of false prophecy. So the people who supported print really supported it because they thought it would be more cheaper titles for themselves. And they didn't anticipate the birth of the pamphlet, the use that officials would make of print and the different genres and the different types of readers who jo then joined the reading community. And we've been through that all again when radio came along, that would kill the book. When cinema came along, when television, the microfilm was meant to kill the book. Then the CD-ROM. Remember the CD-ROM? Where's that gone? And, um, you know, one of the things I, I have no uh, lack of confidence about is the durability of the physical book. I can tell you that although there is a very fine reading of the book on the audio book, and it's obviously available for, for iReaders, 95% of the, the copies bought of the book at war will be in its print version. Because print is so flexible, the book is such a great invention. You don't have to read it from page one all the way through. You can consult it. You can, you can pick out a chapter, go back and find something. Um, it's a reference tool, whereas, you know, if we go back to uh, to scrolling on your, on, on, your, on your computer, you're going back to the technology of 2,000 years ago when they gave it up because scrolls you can only read in one way. <laughs> good, uh, good look at the history to today. I appreciate it. Uh, Professor Andrew Pedigree, uh, um, Professor of Modern History at the University of, Scot uh, University of St. Andrews in Scotland. We appreciate the time that you've uh, given to Veterans Radio today to give us a chance to look at inside the thinking of the book at war, which is available from all your normal retailers online and in person. Uh, Andrew, thanks for spending a little time with us today. Well, this has been a great deal of fun, Jim. So nice to meet you. And uh, my, my respects to all your listeners. And just to tell you that the film rights are still available for the Book of War. <laughs> we'll stop recording there. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fawson. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans. And you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by visiting us at veteransradio.org.
That's veteransradio.org. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, nvbdc.org, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan. VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor. And the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. We appreciate all your support. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the sponsor level, and continue to support keeping Veterans Radio on the air. And until next time... You are dismissed. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.